Welcome to ED ECMO. Welcome to ED ECMO. This is ED ECMO. So, hello, ED ECMO. This is Zach Shiner, and uh, I am here today with Mark Dickstein. How are you, Mark? I'm doing great. So today we're going to talk a little bit heady. We're going to talk about some physiology and uh, some really cool stuff. Now, Mark, you're from Columbia. You're an anesthesiologist. Is that correct? That's correct. And you have a particular fondness for physiology of ECMO. Right. How did you get into this? Uh, Well, I've had a fondness for cardiovascular physiology for a long time. Uh, I'm a cardiothoracic anesthesiologist at Columbia and uh, ran the physiology course at the medical school for about 10 years and um, have a, uh, a computer program, a simulation program for cardiovascular physiology that I've been working on with Dan Burkhoff since, um, since the early 90s. And we use that a lot for research initially, but um, uh, in around 2000, I uh, got it online as a web, as a Java program and use that for teaching. Um, and got into the physiology of ECMO uh, probably about seven, eight years ago when we were managing a lot more patients on ECMO. So I added gas exchange to simulator and uh, got a lot of new insights into the physiology of ECMO when I did that. And so this is the Harvey website is that you're talking about? Yeah, Harvey, H-A-R-V-I dot online if you want to go check it out. Yeah, so I got Plug this. Harvey. <laughs> I got to take a look at it, and it is fantastic. I mean, it really is uh, sophisticated and, and, and pretty cool. So definitely check that out. So, Mark, I want to jump right into this, and I want to jump uh-huh. into it maybe if, uh, a little patient-centered because right. uh, because I've had you know experiences over the years kind of wondering, like, am I doing this right? Like even when we started doing eCPR, if we just got the cannulas in, we were happy. And right, right. Uh, and now I'm just realizing like all these little nuances are super important in uh, in the outcomes of these patients. Right. So maybe the first thing is I have noticed over the years that when we put somebody on ECMO, someone has a cardiac arrest in the ER, we get the cannulas in, um, they have had no, you know, basically no heart function for 45 minutes, an hour, an hour and 15 minutes, and we put them on. And then their contractility comes back amazing. I put that ultrasound on the heart. The squeeze looks fantastic. And then over the next like hour or two hours, it seems like that that EF drops significantly. And I'm wondering right. if there's something that I'm doing from a physiologic standpoint that is maladaptive to this. Um, well, I don't know because I don't know exactly what you're doing. <laughs> but... Um... Uh, you know, I think it really, I mean, you sort of hit the nail on the head there. When you put someone on ECMO, the whole key is going to be the recoverability of LV function. Mm -hmm. And there will be some patients that when you get them on ECMO and you restore uh, pressure head, when you restore oxygen delivery to the heart, uh, the heart wakes up and uh, springs back to life. And that's great. There's certainly patients in whom that doesn't happen at all. The heart is really stunned. And even though you're... um, Restoring systemic flow and a pressure head, uh, the heart is really not going to come back that quickly. Um, and why an hour or two later it starts to sag, there are many reasons for that. But um, I think the initial thing is uh, is uh, focusing on the recoverability of heart function and really making a good assessment for that. So, yeah, so as our metrics, I think yes, through this whole talk, our metrics are can we perfuse the heart, can we perfuse the brain? Is that correct? Uh, well, uh, the 
that's one of the metrics. So you definitely can perfuse the heart and the brain and the gut and the kidneys. And ECMO is fantastic for restoring oxygen delivery to end organs. What it uh, doesn't do is it doesn't put the heart in a, in a good spot uh, otherwise because you're raising pressure, you're raising afterload, and you can um, really uh, suddenly uh, distend the heart and you can suddenly raise pulmonary venous pressures and you can put someone into pulmonary edema and, uh, and really reduce gas exchange. Uh, if you completely uh, obliterate lung function, then whatever little bit the LV will be ejecting will be venous blood and you develop Harlequin syndrome or North-South syndrome. And so whatever is being ejected by the LV is venous blood going, you know, first to the coronaries and the brain. So um, you really need to sort of, um, you know, focus on the physiology that you're left with after getting on ECMO. But ECMO is fantastic at restoring perfusion to uh, distal organs. Okay, so let's let's stay, start maybe with the, the venous cannula. Take us through the physiology of what happens when I initiate ECMO on someone. Uh, it is, the physiology of this is a little counterintuitive. You would expect if you're taking volume from the venous circulation and bypassing the heart and the lungs and returning it to the arterial circulation, that you would be offloading the central circulation. But that's not what happens. Any volume, any blood return that bypasses the cannula, gets to the right heart, gets through the lungs, gets to the left heart, cannot get out of the left heart unless the heart can generate enough pressure to open the aortic valve. You've got to get back to a steady state where what the LV is ejecting equals the venous return coming back to it. And if it's a really impaired ventricle and you've just raised arterial pressure, with VA ECMO, it's going to have a really hard time generating that pressure to open the aortic valve. The heart will distend. The pulmonary venous pressures will suddenly rise. The patient could suddenly go into florid pulmonary edema. And on top of that, if gas exchange in the lungs is suddenly impaired, the blood returning to the left heart is venous blood. It's deoxygenated. And so the little bit of blood that is being ejected by the LV is going right to the coronaries and to the brain. And that can cause possibly what you were asking about, the sag uh, an hour or two later, because the left heart now is not getting oxygenated blood to it. You have what we call Harlequin syndrome or North-South syndrome. Oh, man. That makes so much sense. So in other words, I... I, I not, the first thing is non-ejecting heart is bad. So a non-ejecting heart is really bad yeah. for several reasons. One, it means the pulmonary venous pressures could be sky high. But two, you can also develop frank thrombus in the left atrium or in the left ventricle. And if you do, the game is over. And so you really need to have the heart ejecting. This is not like the cardiopulmonary bypass that we use in the operating room where we're fully anticoagulated, we have a reservoir, we completely empty out blood volume to completely empty the heart and the lungs. This is not what we have on ECMO. On ECMO, you need an ejecting heart, and if you don't have it, you can just clot off the whole left side of the heart. Yeah. Okay, so, so non-ejecting heart, really bad. But right. even a slightly ejecting heart is not good. So if we have if we have high pressures, we're generating non-oxygenated blood, and that blood is the exact blood that's going to go into the coronaries. That's correct. If you if you've trashed the lungs with pulmonary edema, uh, then uh, the blood that is being ejected by the heart is going to go to the coronaries in the brain. So then there's some optimal amount of of 
stroke volume that we want. Is that correct? Well, again, it depends what the goal is. There are two different goals with ejection. Um, one, uh, you want to have a low enough venous pressure so that you don't uh, flood the lungs. And you can do that with a non-ejecting heart, but you want to have the heart filled just enough so that it ejects. If it requires a very, very high filling pressure, then that's not sustainable. The second thing is you want an ejecting heart because you don't want stasis. So it's not so much the amount of stroke volume. It could be probably more the ejection fraction. You don't want smoke and stasis in the left atrium and the left ventricle. Okay, so we've got the venous cannula in. I start drawing out three and a half liters of blood. There's another liter and a half that's going through the heart. Is that a fair enough like observation? Uh, well, in certain situations, uh, yeah. Um, you could, you definitely have some that's bypassing the venous cannula. What the exact numbers are, uh, it depends on the situation and the patient uh, pathology. Sure. So if they're hypovolemic, it would be different. But for just a, right. an example here, we got five liters in general in the body. We take out three right. and a half liters. We got one and a half liters going through the body. Because right. I put that venous cannula in there, I decreased the pressure of the right atrium. I have subsequently decreased the pressure of the right ventricle. Now, when we get over to the left side, things become more complicated because I'm pushing that blood back up the opposite direction, creating an increased afterload. Is that correct? Well, sort of, but it's not because you're pushing it up backwards. Okay. It really doesn't matter the direction. Okay. The key okay. is what the mean arterial pressure is. Okay. What the heart sees is the mean arterial pressure in the, in the aortic root, and that's really what the key is. And so whether you raise the pressure with a vasopressor or with ECMO, the heart doesn't care how that pressure is raised. So if you start out with a mean pressure of 40 and suddenly you go on ECMO and the mean pressure is 80, that heart is going to have a much, much harder time ejecting its contents. And if at a mean pressure of 40, it was unable to eject very much, it's certainly not going to be able to do that at a mean pressure of 80 unless there is significant recovery of function. Mm. So the the what we're hoping is that the perfusion, the oxygenated perfusion from ECMO is going to lead to uh, coronary artery perfusion that increases contractility to a way that we can now sustain an, an 80 millimeter of mercury pressure. Is that correct? Exactly. Or you've been fibrillating because you don't have oxygenated blood going to the to the heart and you restore perfusion and you're able to defibrillate the patient, they suddenly have heart function back. But whatever it is, you have got to restore heart function. If you don't have heart function, there is no way you can decompress the central circulation. And just on a minor point, what you're talking about in terms of decompressing the right side, if at the point that you start ECMO, you have so low flow that you only have a liter and a half flowing through the lungs and the heart. You really have a significant low output state. And with your ECMO, because the patient's got plenty of volume, you've just established a parallel circulation in the lower body with your VA ECMO of three and a half liters, and you still happen to have one and a half liters going through the, the lungs and the heart, your CVP won't be any different. The only time you'll have a reduction in the CVP is if you reduce the flow going through the right heart. So that initially, let's say you had three liters, you're still in, you're still in cardiogenic shock, but now you've reduced the flow going through the heart and the lungs with your VA ECMO. Then you will reduce your CVP. Okay.
Yeah, I need to chew on that a little bit. <laughs> Mark, you, you, you are yeah. so well spoken. I, this is great. I'm trying to, I'm trying to just, just digest what you just said. Okay. So if I, if I de, so if I, when I'm on flow and I've got a patient that has an ejecting heart and I've right. got three and a half liters going through the, the machine, is there actually more blood going through the, uh, the heart than one and a half liters if their total volume is five? Well, uh, it, it all adds up. So if you're telling me that the total flow is five and mm -hmm. three is going through ECMO, then the other one and a half is going through the lungs. Right. Yeah. And so that one and a half liters, uh, if we kind of look at, and, and I'm, I'm a, a, a novice at this, if we take the Starling curve, and we start saying, okay, I now have a lot less volume in the left ventricle, and therefore I am less, I'm, I'm not optimized at creating a stroke volume. Is it now much more difficult to create a, uh, an adequate EF? So if you're thinking about this in terms of um, uh, Starling curves, and I would suggest uh, your group take a look at the, um, the ASIO paper where I generate Starling curves on, on uh, VA ECMO, the, two, the components of the Starling curve have to do with preload, contractility, and afterload. So let's say you make the assumption that the LV contractility doesn't change, but now you're saying we're reducing the work that the heart has to do. We only needed to pump less. Before it was, let's say, pumping three liters. Now it only has to pump a liter and a half. Well, then you'd say it could do that at a lower filling pressure. However, you're also saying that we've raised afterload. And so that would offset that benefit. And so at the same time that you're reducing how much the LV has to eject, you're also increasing the afterload and that sends it in the opposite direction. And so it could actually mean that your filling pressure has to be exactly the same or maybe even higher depending on the relative, um, you know, change in afterload versus a relative change in preload. Okay. So let's, let's talk about how we, we actually do this. If, if I've got a patient that is uh, on ECMO, they just had a cardiac arrest and I and they were in asystole, and now suddenly their heart comes back. They have some EF. Well, I guess not. They have some contractility, but I don't see opening of the valves. I don't see that the heart is ejecting. What right. what, what can I do at that point? So what you need to do a couple of things. Um, you need to look at what the mean arterial pressure is. Because you're looking at a condition, a lot of times we go on ECMO and we're so happy that we get a blood pressure back. And I've seen patients on VA ECMO and folks who are not used to looking at steady flow, the, the blood pressure might be 105, the mean pressure. That's spectacularly high. So if they're on vasopressors at that time, get them off or reduce them. Get the pressure down to as low as you're comfortable with. The lower the mean arterial pressure, the easier it will be for the heart to eject. And so that would be the first step is take a look at the, what the mean arterial pressure is and get it down to as low as you're comfortable. If the heart's still not ejecting, it can be either because the heart has such poor contractile function, it can't eject even at that relatively low mean arterial pressure, or it might be underfilled. And so you're only going to be able to tell that by using echo and taking a look at the size of the heart or having a PA catheter in to look at what the filling pressures are. But you have to assess whether the heart is 
at the limit of what you'd accept in terms of its filling pressure and dimensions. It may be underfilled and not ejecting for that reason, and the patient may need volume. Maybe you lost a lot of blood volume during cannulation. Uh, it certainly can be you know, one or the other, but it's either if the preload is adequate and the afterload is as low as you're willing to go and it's still not ejecting, then you need another solution. Okay, so I've got a patient that's non-ejecting. I need to focus on decreasing the MAP. And when I say low, maybe what we're talking about is a MAP in the in the 65 range. Is that what we're thinking? Sure. You know, on bypass, we, we uh, usually run MAPs, uh, 60s, 70s. It depends if, uh, you know, patients got significant carotid disease, you might, and a uh, history of uh, hypertension, you might run it a little higher. But in this setting, I would definitely drop it to at least, you know, maps in the 60s, 70s to see if you get ejection. Okay, awesome. And so I, I need to be also cognizant that I just gave all this epi. It's going to start circulating. And, and it's not infrequent. Exactly what you just said happens where our pressures go through the roof. And we, we have to realize that is really bad. Okay, so right. that's, that's number one. Number two is that now I need to use my ultrasound put it on the chest, see what the left ventricle size is. If it's right. really small, then the patient needs more volume. We need blood going through the heart. Right. And that's to optimize the whole starling curve so that there, the contractility, we can get enough volume in there so that the heart can adequately contract. Right. Uh, you know, again, the goals are that um, you've decompressed the lungs, but that you also have some volume going through the left ventricle. So uh, you have some output and you don't uh, thrombose the, the left side. Would there be advantages to decreasing the flow of the ECMO machine, turning down the RPMs? You know, that is a great question and really important physiology here. So the decreasing the RPMs of the device what it will do is it will suddenly lower pressure because you're suddenly reducing the amount of flow in the arterial tree. And so if you want to test whether the heart can eject at a lower pressure, a quick way to do that is turning down the RPMs. Your pressure will drop immediately. And if the heart starts ejecting, you'll find out that the heart actually can eject at that lower pressure. But what I would recommend, because we're putting this patient on for that support, is turn back up the flows and instead come down on vasopressors and reduce pressure that way. The you know raising pressure with flow is good because it's improving oxygen delivery, but raising pressure with vasoconstrictors is not good because we're reducing flow, we're reducing oxygen delivery, and that's not how you want to uh, lower pressure, uh, lowering the RPMs of the device. You can do that as a challenge to test it, but uh, try to restore flow as much as you can so you can get off the vasopressors. Mark, you mentioned your um, ASIO uh, paper. I, I had to read it a couple times, but it's really good. And, um, and you mentioned in there about like decreasing volume, uh, like the whole relationship of whether you want to use pressors versus volume. Now, I think in our, in our scenario, it's not uncommon for us to actually have the problem of being unable to get the pressure high enough. So right. in those situations, tell me how you're, how you're, you're organizing or, or changing management. Well, so oftentimes, you know, by the time you resuscitate these patients, there's a component of vasodilatory shock. So um, 
So oftentimes it is going to be difficult to raise pressure and you will need to be on vasopressors as well. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, the first thing I do is try to maximize flow through the ECMO as much as possible because, again, raising pressure with flow is a much better technique. But a lot of times you'll still need to be on vasopressors, especially if, um, you know, they've had a long downtime and they're, uh, they're vasodilated for that reason. Okay, so optimize the flow. Try and get as much flow through the machine um, rather than using vasopressors. Can you just explain that to me? Why, why is that important? So again, two different ways to raise pressure. Um, vasopressors will raise press, uh, pressure because they increase vascular resistance and they slow down blood leaving the arterial tree. And so that maintains more volume in the arterial tree and that's why pressure goes higher. With ECMO, you're delivering flow directly into the arterial tree, and that will also raise pressure by raising the volume in the arterial tree. But on one hand, if you raise pressure with vasoconstriction, you're decreasing flow, you're decreasing oxygen delivery. You're, um, uh, on the other hand, if you raise pressure by increasing the flow through the device through ECMO, you're improving oxygen delivery. And so a lot of times we uh, raise pressure with a vasoconstrictor and then an hour or two later, the lactates are starting to rise and they start to crap out. It's because we've made gains with pressure, but at the expense of oxygen delivery. Mm, so good. And then in, in that whole regime, how about volume status? So I, 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 how are you titrating volume status on these patients? Right. So the, you know, the perfect way to do it is to look at what the pulmonary venous pressures are or what the LVEDP is, which you're not measuring, but you can get a sense of it with echo and what your wedge pressure is or your PA pressures. You want to try to lower them as low as um, uh, you can where the heart is still ejecting. Um, and so uh, that's really that's really the key. And a lot of times what happens is the heart like in the scenarios you describe where the patient comes back um, after they go on ECMO and you see good function, that's the time that you suddenly have room to get volume off the patient because the filling pressures are obviously high enough, high enough to allow them to open the aortic valve and eject. They're doing fine. You can, you have room to get volume off. A lot of times we put patients on ECMO and think that our job is done. We've restored the circulation, but oftentimes this device, as well as any other mechanical circulatory support device, just provide the room to then start medically managing them, getting them off the vasopressors, you know, giving them some Lasix, putting them on CVVH, getting volume off, and uh, it just provides the room that you otherwise didn't have. So, so <laughs> I, I think something that you mentioned there, which uh, is interesting, is is the wedge pressure, right? You in the operating room, right. you have this available to you. Is that correct? Right. Almost all my patients have PA catheters in, yeah. uh, and so I can get a sense of uh, of PA pressures and wedge pressure and filling pressures. And so, you know, we've had these studies that say, uh, you know, that's not that important. But but in your impression, with where you're like physiologically managing these patients at their extremis, uh, you know, in during operations and things. Tell me about what the, that data adds to your, to your uh, management. PA catheters uh, are not 
therapeutic, right? They are, uh, it's a, they're diagnostic. And so um, in the right situation, and if you can interpret the, the data you're getting from them, it can mean all the difference in the world in terms of how you manage patients. In the operating room for cardiac surgery, uh, it's really invaluable to make uh, where time is of the essence and you're trying to figure out if someone is hypotensive, what's the cause? Um, so we we use PA catheters all the time. And I think for anyone on a mechanical circuitry support device that is just inserted, you need to be following uh, PA pressures. Uh, you need to see the trends. Uh, it helps with volume status. It helps intervene a little bit more preemptively rather than just when someone crashes. Um, so it, it's really uh, an essential device. We also have transophageal echo in all these patients. So the two together allow us really to sort of fill in all those all those details. So I, th- I think these are the things that when even when we don't have them available to us, so like in the emergency room, I don't have a PA catheter in, but, right, but right. we need to, to at least predict what you're going to find with that catheter, right? The, these pressures right. are so important. So even if I don't have the catheter there, I need to be thinking, okay, what's my pulmonary vein pressure? What's my pulmonary artery pressure? Um, Right. Because that is where we're going to make the decision versus pressures, pressors versus more flow versus more volume or decreased right. volume. Right. And so, you know, an echo is extremely valuable, although you'll probably be taking care of patients who have, you know, dilated cardiomyopathy and they come in and they arrest. And so they have an acute process on top of that chronic process. And looking just at the size of the heart can be a little difficult to tell whether they're underfilled or overfilled. Uh, it, it can be a little tricky. Um, certainly, if you have a normal patient, a normal heart, and it's an acute MI, and you see a massively distended ventricle, you could assume that's that's uh, not a good state. But a lot of times, the echo is is inadequate to tell you really what those filling pressures are and whether the heart is underfilled or overfilled. Okay. A couple more things here. Now, when we start talking about some of these like other devices, are there ways that we can vent the LV or that we can augment the LV? Uh, do you find that... that that using other devices like Impala or balloon pump or, or uh, even the septostomy kind of idea, is that, is that advantageous? Uh, yeah, in certain situations, it's, it's, it's essential. Um, again, if the heart doesn't recover, then uh, all this is really for, for naught, right? So we want to uh, make it so that the heart can recover. And if it's distended um, and it's not ejecting in, uh, for hours like that, it's not going to, not going to recover. The techniques for uh, decompressing the heart, um, there are a number. I mean, you can get you can get volume out of the heart and decompress it. I mean, you can exsanguinate a patient and decompress the heart, um, but it's not going to eject. So that's not going to accomplish all of your goals. Uh, a number of patients have been uh, uh, put on a balloon pump either before uh, ECMO and then ECMO was added. And the balloon pump physiology is is very interesting, uh, but it, what it basically does um, simply, it reduces the effective afterload, the mean arterial pressure that the heart sees during ejection. And so let's say you've reduced pressure to as low as you're comfortable with. You brought it down to 60 millimeters of mercury and, and you wouldn't go any lower in this patient because you think that would be a setup for hyperperfusing the brain or something. You put in a balloon pump you can have a mean arterial pressure of 60 that the brain sees, but the heart only sees a mean arterial pressure of 50 during ejection. And it could be that that 10 millimeters of mercury 
makes all the difference in the world from a heart that is just barely opening the aortic valve to a heart that's able to eject enough. And so um, the balloon pump just reduces the effective pressure that the heart sees. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I think I agree with this. So, you know, we have all these studies that, that um, show no difference. They show no benefit. But it's I think it's super hard to to isolate the problem, like given problems that patients have and whether that improves it. I, I am actually a pretty big fan of thinking physiologically and and right. using that as my major guidance for whether it's a, a, an intervention is is going to be beneficial or not. I think that's that's exactly right. And I and to really study this, it's not just whether you place a balloon pump, but it's how you manage it. And that's really the key. It's, it's not just the balloon pump being turned on. It's then how you manage the pressure. And so that's really the key. And I haven't seen studies that, that really um, uh, do that well enough. Other ways to decompress the heart, you can put an impeller device in. And um, that device is, is uh, the, physiology, uh, the physiology of that is uh, really nice in that it decompresses the LV. So it lowers end diastolic pressure. It lowers pulmonary venous pressure, decompresses the lungs. And the flow is also additive. So if you're flowing three, three and a half liters with ECMO, and you're still on some vasopressors because they're a little vasodilated still, and that the total flow is still inadequate, the, the flow through the impella is additive to the ECMO flow and may be enough to get off of vasopressors. Um, it may, because you have that increased flow, allow you to further diurese a patient and get more volume out because now you have plenty of flow going through the lungs, the left atrium, the left ventricle. Other ways to decompress, uh, if this is post-cardiotomy shock in the operating room, oftentimes we'll put uh, a, a cannula directly in the LV apex. Uh, that's an option available to us in the operating room because the chest is already open. And in that case, we just wide that to the venous limb. So we don't get an additional flow, but we can kind of with a, a little clamp on that venous line, we can uh, control how much volume we're taking from the LV versus from the uh, systemic venous side. And you mentioned, uh, as lastly, um, uh, septostomy. A septostomy is another way to, to divert flow and decompress the left atrium, but it's not going to decompress the left ventricle. You'll reduce filling pressures. You may reduce uh, uh, LV filling, but if it's not ejecting with that high filling pressure, it's not going to eject if you reduce left atrial pressure, and you'll, so you'll still be left with a heart with stasis in a non-ejecting scenario. You mentioned something here, which has been a fascination of mine, and, and I would love to ask you is, how do you think in, in our settings, like in an eCPR setting or a cardiogenic shock setting, how, how could we use, or do you think it would be beneficial to use VVA or VAV? Well, so uh, as a solution to uh, Harlequin syndrome, um, if your lungs are trashed and there's no gas exchange uh, uh, happening at the lungs um, and you need the LV to eject, uh, it's going to be ejecting venous blood. So one way around that problem is to go on VAV ECMO. So you take some of the oxygenated blood and put it back into the venous circulation. So at least the blood that's going back through the lungs to the left heart. Uh, has a, a higher oxygen content. 
Yeah. Uh, and so that's, yeah. That makes sense to me. Like, it makes sense to me that that would be something that we should maybe employ more often than even not in these scenarios where we start titrating, um, you know, how much oxygen they're actually getting through the lungs by simply putting in a cannula that can can give us oxygenated blood on the on the right side. Right. So, you know, the downside of that is um, uh, whatever support you're you're giving to the systemic circulation, you're reducing it by that much. So if you divert, if you're flowing at three and a half liters and that's about all you can you can get uh, and you divert a liter and a half, you've reduced your systemic support to two liters per minute. So there's a cost to it that you're reducing how much systemic flow you can have. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So um, final kind of thing here. I, I I just want to kind of go through this. We've got, we've got the venous cannula in, we've got a certain amount of flow. We've got an ejecting heart, but, but not very well after cardiac arrest. The blood is now, we've now decreased right ventricular pressures. We've potentially increased or decreased right or left ventricular pressures. Is that correct? Well, if there's poor function, most likely you've raised, you've uh, raised. If, you, if you've raised mean arterial pressure, then you've raised filling pressure to the left heart. You can pretty much anticipate that if you weren't ejecting, if you were doing CPR and the heart function hasn't come back and now you've raised pressure, arterial pressure, then the left heart will distend. Okay. And then when we start talking about like the, the oxygen delivery to the myocardium, so if your heart is over distended, then you have less oxygen that actually can get through the very small capillaries that, that feed to the heart. And therefore, that is not good. Right. It, it also increases oxygen demand of the heart. So as the heart distends, uh, oxygen demand increases, pressure volume area increases, wall stress increases. Uh, it puts it in a, in, a, in a bad place. You can also cause other problems as the heart distends and the mitral annulus uh, get stretched, you can suddenly develop severe mitral insufficiency, which further raises left atrial pressure and pulmonary venous pressure. So a lot of bad things happen with the distended heart. Much harder to cardiovert a distended heart uh, mm-hmm. in the operating room. Really, uh, we can't cardiovert. We're fibrillating after a cross comb comes off. If the heart is full, very, very difficult to cardiovert. Uh, decompress, take the volume out of the heart, and then uh, we can successfully cardivert that heart. So distension is a really bad thing for many, many reasons. Got it. Mark, uh, any other things? What other things are, are you think that the listeners would be interested in hearing? I think that the physiology of ECMO is really important, uh, and I would encourage everyone to check out Harvey. Uh, and so you can actually play around. You can put on all these devices. You can create all these scenarios. You can explore them, and uh, you can have uh, hours and hours of fun. But I also think understanding this physiology is the key to uh, uh, better managing these patients. And these patients are challenging to manage. So I think we really need to become expert in this physiology. Okay. Wow. Mark was amazing. Now, uh, I know some of you are probably like, what the heck did he just say? And some of you are probably like, yeah, of course. How could you manage a patient on ECMO without knowing all that stuff? I think for many of us, we're somewhere in between. And uh, I hope that you can appreciate that 
this idea of physiology, about understanding the pump in a deeper way can significantly impact the way that people survive, the way that people have outcomes with this, with use of this technology. And so I encourage you, those of you who were kind of maybe blown away a little bit, go back and listen to it again. I've listened to this several times already, and I think it's uh, what Mark is talking about is so fundamentally important. Um, I'll put a copy of his paper from ASIO, as well as his link to his Harvey on the podcast, and you can check it out. A couple of announcements. Reanimate 7 is coming up. It's in September. Check it out. There's still a few open spots. And um, we'll be doing a lot of different conferences over the fall, so check us out at various places. We'll update you more as those come. But from July, EDECMO, this is Zach Shiner signing out.